Warning, the following audio transmission is based on theory and is intended for entertainment purposes only. It's Doomsday and its affiliates will not be held liable for anything your dumbass does. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome everybody to It's Doomsday Podcast. Today is May 12th, 2022. Time is approximately 9pm where I am. And guys, I was just informed today that Randy Weaver had passed on. Alright. Now, I had just covered Ruby Ridge on a live show last month in April. I believe April 10th. Okay. Once I got this information today I decided it was time to get this episode up for you guys to hear so guys this is going to be a two-part episode all right definitely stick around to the very end of the second part because there's going to be something that happens in there that's going to blow your mind but before we get into this guys the email it's doomsday podcast at gmail.com you can find me on tiktok at it's doomsday podcast 2.0 If you guys want to drop a line and reach out, we'd love to hear it. And without further ado, here's the tale of Ruby Ridge, guys. Let me just let me just get into this. And and first, let me say this. I want all of you guys to remember. Everything I'm about to tell you took place because one man. Made two illegal shotguns and sold them for seven hundred dollars to an undercover ATF informant. All of this that we're about to talk about was for making two sawed-off shotguns that you could legally purchase over the counter. You can't do it at home. That's the law he broke, and this was the consequence he faced. Can you buy uh, sawed-off shotguns legally? It, aren't, aren't those illegal? No, it no. Was when you buy them at the store, they have uh, it's a, it has to be over an 18-inch barrel, gotcha. 18, 18 and a half. So these are legal to purchase. These are not illegal to own. It's just illegal to manufacture these these at home. Now, mind you, um, it's not like he was making fully automatic weapons. It's not like he was making grenades or had any kind of crazy class three stuff. He literally cut two barrels off two shotguns. Did he background check the ATF agent? No, but he probably should have. Well, he wasn't an ATF agent. He was an ATF informant. And we'll get into that. Um, We'll get into that. Um, so to start, to start this off, uh, this all began on August 21st, 1992. That's when the 11 day siege began and it lasted until August 31st, 1992. And it only ended with the help of Bo Greitz. So we'll get into Bo Greitz here in a little bit. Um, Randy Weaver surrendered with Bo Greitz, the aftermath of which left two injured and four dead, including the Weaver's dog. The story of Ruby Ridge, we're about to get into. And I have some audio I want to play for you guys uh, just to put you in this mindset of where everybody was at the time. It's about a six-minute audio clip. 
if it plays, it might not play, but we're going to we're going to give it a whirl here. You may not have lived in Idaho 25 years ago, but ask anybody who did, and they will tell you the story of Ruby Ridge, an 11-day siege on a remote hilltop near Bonners Ferry. The whole case started a year prior to that when Weaver refused to appear in court. That's why the Marshal Service got involved. Michael Johnson was a U.S. Marshal at the time, the law enforcement agency responsible for bringing Randy Weaver in. You see, Weaver was wanted on a federal firearm charge. He sold two sawed-off shotguns to a federal informant who was looking for information about the Aryan nation based nearby in Idaho's panhandle. Weaver refused to show up in court. You cannot tell the government, whether it's city, county, or state, uh, I'm not going to come to court. If you let that go, then you have anarchy. U.S. Marshal agents made a series of attempts to have Weaver surrender, but Weaver refused to leave his cabin. That's when things escalated with more federal agents and hundreds of Weaver supporters converging on Ruby Ridge. Shots were fired, and it didn't take long to see what had just happened. Really, within 15 minutes, Vicki Weaver would be dead, and uh, Kevin Harris would be shot, and the entire thing, which should have been easily settled would just simply blow up. Boise attorney Chuck Peterson knew Randy Weaver. He was an instrumental part of Weaver's defense team. And even today, Peterson says there's plenty of blame to go around. The marshals who were on the property bear some of the blame. They didn't follow the orders that they'd been given. Randy Weaver certainly bears some of the, of the blame. He could have come down from the mountain before the marshal service was ever there. And if he had, probably his entire family would still be alive. Including Weaver's son, Sammy. The standoff was ultimately resolved by Bo Greitz, a decorated Vietnam War veteran. And in the end, it's a civilian. It's not an FBI agent. It's not anybody associated with the federal government or the state government who negotiates a settlement. So what have we learned from Ruby Ridge? You know what I hope people take away from this is that always could have been prevented if Randy Weaver just would have showed up in court. Nobody wanted to go up there and kill anybody. We just needed to have him show up in court. Don Nelson, six on your side. All right. Now, there's. I know that's a lot of information in such a short period of time, um, but there is a lot to take away from this. And one number I challenge anybody to go out there and look for is look at the amount of money that the federal government, try to find the amount that the federal government spent on this operation. Because when we get into this, you're going to be like, holy shit, they were pulling this kind of an operation? Yeah. All right. So I'd like to get into Randy Weaver's background first so everybody could kind of get a sense of who this, an idea of who this guy is, right? Uh, Randall Claude Weaver, a.k.a. Randy Weaver, was born on January 3rd, 1948 in Villisca, Iowa. Weaver graduated high school in 1966. 1966. He went on to a university college in northern Iowa. Uh, while he was in college, he met his wife, Victoria Jordanson. No relation to the Slipknot drummer, Joey Jordanson, by the way, that I could find. But I thought it was interesting they shared the same last name in both, you know, being a band from Iowa and she was from there. Totally unrelated, though. Um, he dropped out of college uh, to go join the fight in Vietnam. Uh, while we were was in the Army, he completed Green Beret training but never made it to Vietnam. While he was in the Army, he was stationed at Fort Bragg in North Carolina. Uh, and Weaver is also listed as a U.S. Army engineer. So this is a guy that has had some good training. He's not a dummy. He's pretty fucking smart. Like, he knows his shit. Aside with him dropping out of college, a lot of people like to throw out there, well, he dropped out of college. Could have been that smart. But, I mean. So did uh, Bill Gates, I believe. 
So did Bill Gates. Yeah, I think he dropped that. <laughs> gotcha. All right. Um, but yeah, so Weaver's not a dummy. He's combat trained. He knows how certain things work. So to continue in the, to continue into this. <clears throat> in 1971, one month after Weaver left the army, he married Victoria Johnson in Fort Dar- Dodge, Iowa. Fort Dodge, Iowa. From here, he will be. From here, we we will be referring to Victoria Johnson as Vicky Weaver from here on out because they're now married. Uh, Weaver then found employment at the local John Deere facility in Iowa. So he was working. He had a. He had a regular job. He was a regular guy, had just gotten married. But there were things going on in this area that was pushing them away from Iowa. Um, and I'm going to get a, I'm going to get another beer here while we're going, because this is alive. And I've never I've guys, I got to tell you, I've never been nervous for a show like I am for this one. And I think it's because it's such a sensitive case. So many people have covered it. It's like I know there's a lot of competition with this and I don't typically do these kind of things. So I'm a little, little nervous tonight. So just bear with me, guys. Mm. All right. Um, so while uh, Weaver was working at the John Deere facility, his wife Vicky worked as, as a secretary until she became a homemaker. All right. Once, you know, they got married and started having kids, stuff like that. She was like, okay, I'm going to be a stay-at-home mom. I'm going to stay home with the kids. And then this is what pushed the Weavers to Idaho. In 1980, the Weaver family considered leaving Iowa because homeschooling was barred. They were having a deep distrust for the government and their religious views were not widely accepted. This led them to seek a life of seclusion. In August of 1983, the Weaver family moved from Iowa to the mountains of Idaho. So, how many of us out there are preppers and homesteaders and kind of want to be out in the middle of nowhere? We all share this common belief that the Weaver family had, the distrust in the government, the wanting to homeschool our kids. We all kind of have this thought process that the Weaver family had, right? So just everybody bear that in mind while we're talking about this stuff. Uh, And I'm sorry, guys, I'm missing a lot of the chats. Uh, Hey, Lexi. Hey, Eric. Hey, everybody that came in. I'm sorry. I missed a lot of people. Gene, hello. And on the clapper, Diane, Ryan, just a minute too. Hey, Ginger Viking. Hello, hello everybody out there. Um, Okay. So the Weavers ended up in Naples, Idaho, 30 miles from the Canadian border in Boundary County. Okay, that's where they ended up at. At the time, this area was known for right-wing survivalists. Like, that's what this area was known for at the time. So a lot of um, people out there talk about, oh, this state's the best state for preppy. This is the best state. Like, this is where all these right-wing guys and preppers went. That's where they ended up at, right? Um, Excuse me. Surprise, Justin says. Surprise, welcome. You're researching the money. If you can find it, please let me know. It's because I've I've tried. I know what the settlement is. Uh, we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, so guys, remember, this was a right-wing survivalist community, small town. This was a very, very tight-knit community. Um, the Weavers ended up purchasing their land for about $5,000. They then built a plywood cabin out of scraps from local lumber, lumber yards and were living the typical homesteading lifestyle. I mean, they were, they were, you know, raising their own chickens and they were basically off grid. They didn't have TV. I think all they had was like a radio to listen to, you know, the weather, the news or other things that were coming. Um, and the weavers felt that this was a very ideal, secure lifestyle for their children. Okay. 
And to clarify, because this is something a, a little bit difficult to find how many kids the Weaver had online. There's certain things you read will give you different things. Um, they had four children. There was Sarah, Samuel, Rachel, and Alicia Weaver. These were their four children. A lot of the ports you, you will read say they had three, and I'm not sure why. Uh, Rachel specifically gets missed out from a lot of the articles you read about this case. For whatever reason, I don't know. Now, again, part of their beliefs is they, they were firm believers that Armageddon was coming. And I think more in the, in the biblical sense of an Armageddon, but they were still the right-wing survivalist doomsday prepper family, okay? Uh, and once they were there, Randy Weaver's distrust for the government grew exponentially, along with his racism. So he started becoming a, he started becoming a white separatist. And it was well known, the groups he hung out with, the circles he ran with. And at the time, um, at this point in time, you had organizations like the Order, the neo-Nazis were big, the skinheads were big. And the federal government, the FBI, the ATF, all the feds were working on taking these groups out. And they, I believe they completely eradicated the Order. I believe that's not even a thing anymore. Things like the Aryan Brotherhood still are, skinheads are. I believe even the neo-Nazis uh, started to fall off in, in later years. But back um, in the late 80s, early 90s, the federal government was out to get all of these guys. Okay, it was, it was a bad time. If you look into that stuff, it's pretty wild. But I want to give you guys a little bit more of a sense who, who Randy Weaver was. So I got another audio clip I want to play for you guys. Um, this one, again, is about a six-minute audio clip. And this is Weaver doing an interview. And guys, I really want you to hear what he's saying and how he's saying it. This does get a little bit emotional because this is after the siege at Ruby Ridge. So he's going to say some things that are a bit upsetting with this. But just hear him out with this interview, guys. I want to thank you all for coming out here. Uh, you're really at the wrong spot. You should be down at the IRS commissioner's office and asking him why all of this is going on. Ask him to show you the law that requires you to pay this federal income tax. He won't be able to do it. The closest thing he'll come to is to say, well, you have to pay it because uh, we've shown that through the courts. They say you have to. When you have a government that enforces non-law passed by your Congress, you're run by a king, and it usually ends up very tyrannical. Where are we at now? George Bush says he don't care what Congress says. He's the king. He's the president. He's going to do what he wants. George Bush does not represent me at all. He is a, he's a criminal. What he is, he should be indicted for war crimes. My grandpa Harvey Weaver one time said government just like a garden. It needs to be weeded every now and then. You want to know why he said that? I didn't know for a while, but I figured it out since. This lady here was my wife of almost 20 years. She was a very intelligent lady. The best mother I knew, the best wife I knew. Homeschooled her children. And my, my oldest daughter, one example, I won't go through all of them. One example, my oldest daughter, we thought we, she taught her through the eighth grade. When I went to jail and they sent my daughters back to Iowa, 
they put my put, uh, Sarah in the 11th grade in high school. She had been in school for a couple years, so we thought she was done. Went into 11th grade and graduated with three scholarships. The other kids are just as good. I'm not going to go through all that. Very sweet lady, and when they shot her, she was holding. Now this baby here was my. That was my oldest daughter. That's a picture of my wife holding my oldest daughter Sarah, who is now 31. But if she was holding my youngest daughter Elizabeth, just about the same way. When they shot my wife through the head, Elizabeth was right here. And when I picked her up from underneath my wife's body, she had jawbone, glass from the window pane, and blood all over. I thought she was wounded or dying too. That's one reason we need to weed the government down then, because they take orders to enforce non-laws. These people are here under non-laws, and we were too. I was on, originally on a gun law, but the U.S. Marshals were up there to get me on a failure to appear. I got paperwork I can show you. I had the wrong court date. By the time they claimed I was a wild, crazy man up in the mountains, and the U.S. Marshals going to come get their man, that's the last straw. I got mad. And my wife is mad and my kids are standing behind me. And we, we said, this is it, we ain't going to deal with you no more. What makes people willing to put their lives on the line? They'll take so much BS from the so-called government, the de facto government, and then they just say, back off. And this is just what's happening right here. I ain't afraid to die no more. I'm kind of curious about the next life, and I'm an atheist. My son Sam, this picture, he was 11 years old. He died three years later. U.S. Marshal shot his dog, a yellow Labrador, when the dog was running home. They autopsied the dog, which some U.S. Marshals didn't realize they would do. They wouldn't mess with the dog there. His story was the dog was attacking him. Well, apparently in North Idaho, yellow Labradors, they attacked running backwards because he was shot right up the rear end to come out his spine here and went through his right ear. He was running up the road toward home. He'd already passed these goons. But their job that day on our property was to kill this dog because he had a big mouth, kind of like me, I guess. And they wanted to silence him. <laughs> Sam said, you shot Stryker, you SOB. I'll give you the exact words. Well, I'm going to abbreviate it. And he fired two rounds in this undercover camouflage U.S. Marshal's direction that he just saw shoot his dog and he turned to run for home. Another Marshal who's from Boston, Mass, not too far from here, he shot this little fellow in the right arm, about blew his arm off the elbow. Sam yelled, oh shit. Now I'm telling you what my friend Kevin Harris and his stepbrother, he was there to witness this. He said, Sam yelled, oh shit. Come on, Kevin. They the U.S. Marshals that were shooting at Kevin at the same time. Sam had shot these two rounds at U.S. Marshals. Kevin fired three in their direction while he was being shot at. So there's five rounds fired between my sons. They fired a total of 14 rounds. They didn't hit Kevin, but Kevin heard it when they hit Sam in the back. It was like, the, he said, it sounded like when Tony punched in the back real hard, takes the wind out of you. Well, later on, it, they, it had blown his heart right out. When I picked him up off the ground dead, chunks of meat was falling out of his mouth. His little eyeballs was halfway open and rolled back in the whites. You don't forget that stuff.
All right. So I'm going to end that out there. And this, I mean, this makes me emotional. Could you imagine having to go and pick up your, your young teenage son off the ground who was just shot in the back by people hiding in the woods on your own property? I mean, put yourself in those shoes. You know, as a as a prepper, as a homesteader, as someone who's trying to be off grid, you know, fuck the crimes. Like this is your home, this is your safe haven. All right, and uh, uh, you know, I'm not a I'm not a Weaver sympathizer. So let's let's put out th- that out there in front. You know, just for everybody that has that. Michael, are you still with me? Yeah, I'm here. I'm just listening. Okay, do you think that gave you a pretty good depiction of who Weaver is? I mean, this is after the fact, but to get a good mindset on Weaver, everything else like that, I think it it puts a good puts it into perspective, right? Yeah, I think it does pretty good. All right. Now let's talk about how this all went down. Okay. What what was the start of this? What was the cause of this? What events took place? All right. So I already mentioned about um, the area nations, the order, things like that, all right? At this point in time, the FBI, the ATF, along with other law enforcement agencies, were cracking down on multiple white supremacist groups. And this is very significant to this story because the area nations headquarters was located just 70 miles away from Weaver's cabin, the headquarters of the area nations, okay? So you know, being that the headquarters was there, this this was heavily tons of white supremacy groups in this area individual guys high up guys lower guys they were all over the place okay and um these groups were heavily infiltrated with uh federal informants they were scattered throughout all over the place so when you guys want to start putting together the cost of these operations in your mind start with that that there was multiple paid federal informants let's let's start there because that's what brings us into the weaver case all right in 1986 one of these informants posed as a gun running biker this man was gus magasano all right gus magasano i could be saying that wrong but i'm pretty sure it's magasano he was he was a paid atf informant okay now this was this big scary you know, gun running biker guy put on a very good front was, was a total narc under the scenes, etc. All right. Over the next few years, Gus Magasano, uh, gained Randy Weaver's trust and offered him $700 for two sawed off shotguns. Okay. Now put yourself in Weaver's position. You're hanging out with, with this group of supremacists. You know, these guys are up to no good. You know the kind of trouble they get they can cause. Now there's this big scary gun running biker asking you to sell him two sawed off shotguns. All right. I don't think Weaver would ever admit to it if this was true, but I'm wondering if he just didn't do this out of fear. Like he would he may have been scared of retaliation. Like if I say no, will they think I'm a narc? Will they come after me? Maybe this guy's pretty high up. I don't know. So Weaver did it. Which again is a very, in my opinion, is a it's it's a bullshit crime, especially when you could purchase a sawed-off shotgun legally. This is a very very petty crime. He wasn't running fully automatic AKs, just sawed off two shotguns. That that's it. All right. Well, um, can I? What's the what is the uh, penalty for selling a firearm without doing a background check? 
Um, it, that's a state level thing. Um, you don't have to do background checks to sell firearms privately within the U S it certain States do require that you do a, uh, transfer of ownership with things like handguns. I know Pennsylvania is one of those States where if you sell somebody a handgun privately, you have to get it transferred and during transfer, they do do a background check. What's the Utah, what was not Utah, but was it Idaho? What was that? Their laws. I mean, I know, like you said, it's a state level thing, but I imagine there's some states that restrict that. Okay, so, okay, let's say, let's say he wasn't selling sawed-off shotguns. Let's say he was selling long guns. Mm -hmm. I imagine that there was very little regulation on any kind of private sales of long guns at the time. This was before Waco. This was before um, Oklahoma City. It was before a lot of things. You know, it was before a lot of things happened. Okay. So I don't believe at the time there would have been any regulation on as far as a background check, but modifying a, a shotgun is a federal offense, you know. Mm-hmm. Now, you got to think, this is almost entrapment on the ATF's part. It wasn't like Randy was an arms dealer. It wasn't yeah. like he was out there looking for work modifying weapons. Someone came to him that was a uh, informant, a very scary informant, presented him an offer, and Weaver went through with it. If he did it for the money, he did it for the money. If he did it out of fear, he did it out of fear. I don't know why he did it, but he did it. He broke the law. And at the end of the day, that is that is what matters, right? <laughs> um, so in October of 1989, Randy Weaver sold the illegal firearms to Magasano. Uh, once this happened, Weaver discovered Magasano was an informant, okay? And instead of the ATF arresting him, hmm, And this is what kind of blows my mind. Instead of the ATF arresting him, they tried to flip Weaver to make him an informant. That's what they tried to do. So it's, hey, we know you, we know we set you up. We know you broke this law, et cetera, et cetera. We don't want to take you to jail. We want to make you an informant. Now, Weaver already had a big distrust in the government. Okay. He, he did. He would, he was not a U.S. government supporter in any means. So now you just tricked this guy. You did all the shit. Now you want him to be an informant for you. That's not going to fucking work. Okay. So Randy Weaver ultimately declined the ATF's offer. All right, moving on. So at this point, once the offer was, um, you know, declined, the feds said, Hey, we got to arrest him. Right. So this is what the federal agents did. The federal agents then posed as Taurus in a bro- in a broke down truck, in hopes to arrest Weaver when he attempted to provide aid. All right, mm-hmm. and so what they did was they they parked the truck down the road uh, from his residence and pretended like their vehicle was overheating, something along those lines. And when Weaver was kind enough to stop by and offer his assistance, they arrested his ass. So it's like it's like dirty deeds after dirty deeds on the on the uh on the atf's part right Mm -hmm. it's kind of it's kind of fucked up and uh i just realized my computer's not plugged in here i don't want my battery to die give me a second guys if you hear a little bit of noise my bad okay there we go all right so now mind you this also took place one year after the illegal firearms were sold right so they waited a whole year to pull this off now at the time this is almost like another David Koresh situation. Weaver's still going out and about. He's still doing his thing. You know, he's, I mean, he's primarily staying at home, 
but clearly he's leaving because he's going down to the main road to help provide these guys with assistance, right? So yeah. he's obviously leaving his residence. So they waited a whole year to make this arrest, okay? Um, once Randy Weaver was arrested, he was able to bond out using his property as collateral, okay? Now, this is this is was ultimately the catalyst for Weaver to say, fuck you guys, I'm not coming down off this mountain. This was the catalyst. A federal magistrate informed Weaver if he is found guilty, he will lose his property. Think about that. You've got four kids. Your wife's a homemaker. This is, this is all you have for your family. If you get found guilty, not only can you not provide for your family, but you're also losing your family home, right? And now, I don't, sorry. I, go ahead, Michael. I, there, there's two things that, be, that can be said on that. Now, I don't know a whole lot about <clears throat> the bond situation, but if you collateralize your your property to bond you out and you go to jail and you couldn't pay for that bond still – then that would be true. That's his fault for collateralizing the property. But then it makes you wonder why wouldn't the family have been given the opportunity to continue to pay that debt back, even if he's in jail? Well, so I think, um, I don't think that they could do this. I think this was something that the federal magistrate screwed up on. Cause I don't think they could have legally taken that property. Because when, when you get bonded out of jail, how it works is that is just a collateral to make sure you have your day in court, all right? Being found guilty doesn't change your bond. It's just to get your ass back there, right? So if Weaver said, fuck it, I'm going to sit in jail to the court date, he wouldn't have had to put anything up, no money yeah, at all. Yeah, but it's not – so no matter what, the bond has to be paid off because it's a debt, right? Like if you had – the bond has to be paid if you do not show back up for court. The bond is just a the bond is just a release until you go in for your court date. That's all it is. Yeah, but the in the isn't the bond company basically paying the majority of that that bond? Let's say you had a ten thousand dollar bond, you got to put down a thousand dollars, right? So you get you pay a thousand for the bond. The bond company pays the rest, but you have to pay the rest of that value that nine thousand dollar difference at some point in time. If you don't, if you don't show up for court, that it's only to get your ass back there. You're only on the hook for that money if you don't go back to court. So then, the what happens with the money? Then the 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 money that the bond company put up, are they just receiving that back from from the the county or whoever? So the it's city or the county or how's that work? That's what I'm wondering because because the that'd be I mean you're talking about a very profitable enterprise for for bail bonds and if yeah. they weren't getting that money back then they they there's no one would ever do that because they'd be losing money so the, they get they get that big money back if somebody doesn't show up right like if somebody says hey i'm not coming then that money is now owed to the courts because it, it's a little bit different i'm not a bondsman so i can't i can't accurately comment on all this stuff but you're only you're only on the hook for that um you're only on the hook for this money if you do not it's just to guarantee your court date you pay that bond it allows you freedom till your court date if you get found guilty or if you get found innocent, it doesn't change that. The only thing that changes it is if you don't show up, failure to show up. Um, and I got some, uh, Sean says, correct. I got some people uh, agreeing with me in the chats here. Yeah, that's, um, that's all the bond is. It's just to make sure you get back there. So now, but the thing is where I say the federal magistrate fucked up in this case, 
I think he wasn't able to tell Weaver, if you get found guilty, you'll lose your property. I think if Weaver got found guilty, they couldn't have touched that property, right? I don't think that was something they even could have did. I think the magistrate, the federal magistrate, made a mistake when he told Weaver that. Um, but he, but anyway, long and the short is that's what he told Weaver. Whether it was correct or not, this was at this point the Weaver family had no intentions of leaving that property. It didn't well, matter. And then it brings me to like another question: Is was he saying that to Weaver? You know, in in the sense of. If you're found guilty, you're going to lose the property because you owe money on that property still, and no one's going to be able to provide and pay pay for you know the payments on that land or the property taxes on that land if you're in jail. Um, okay, so property was paid for cash. Okay, um, Randy That's Weaver it. paid uh, his property cost five thousand dollars. He paid cash for. I'm assuming yes, there's there's property tax that would have been due. Um, it's not the federal government's job to jurisdict whether or not Randy Weaver's wife and family would have been capable of paying taxes or not once he would have been incarcerated. Yeah. Right. Well, that goes back to like what I said, like, you know, they're assuming for whatever reason that they wouldn't be able to, um, make payments. Right. But I mean, the government wasn't necessarily wrong if it was just him, but they were wrong in assuming that the family couldn't take over that, that property and make those payments either. Well, see, I think it, I like, again, I think it was all the wording on this. I think what mm -hmm. the judge meant to say to Weaver is if you don't show up, we can seize your property. Yeah. I think the judge fucked up or the magistrate fucked up and he accidentally said, if you get found guilty, we're going to seize your property. Yeah. Um, because I, I, and again, I don't think they could do that. I think that was a mistake that was made on, on the federal magistrate's part. Um, but anyway, this, this solidified the weavers to say, we are never coming back down off this mountain because, you know, Weaver knows what he did broke. He knows he broke the law. He knew there was a good chance he was going to get found guilty. Um, so he was like, fuck it. If I'm going to lose everything, why even leave? All right. Mm -hmm. Now Weaver paints a little bit of a different picture when it comes to the court date. Okay. Weaver says he got a letter in the mail and he had every intention of going to court. Um, but the, the, uh, the, the date on the paperwork was wrong. They sent him a later date. So by the time the court hearing came and passed, he didn't even know he was supposed to be there. That is one thing that Weaver says. There's a lot of other things that counterdict, counterdict that though, or mm -hmm. I'm sorry, count, contradict. contradict. Yeah, I'm sorry. This episode has me all fucked up. Um, okay. So after Weaver's court date, uh, came and left, left in the lack of his appearance, uh, there then became, he then became a federal or a federal fugitive. Right. And the case was turned over to the U S marshals. Um, now this is when things start to get really hairy with the operation they were, they were doing. So again, I, I told you guys in the beginning of this, start racking these bills up in your head because nobody knows how much money fully went into this operation. Yeah. All right. So in 1991, or in April of 1991, a psychological profile was created on the entire Weaver family, okay? In October of 1991, uh, Vicki Weaver gave birth to her fourth child, okay? Something I got to mention outside of this, not in relevance to the case, but Weaver made her give birth in the family shed because he thought that child birthing was unclean, and not only that, he made... Uh, the women, when they were menstruating, he made them go spend their time out in the shed as well as opposed to the house. 
I n- no clue why. It's really it's really fucking weird, but just within this weird research, I had to throw it out there. Thank you, Lexi, for the beer. I appreciate that. Um, so just really fucking goofy, okay? Now this was the next thing that happens here in the case was the big catalyst for the story. One year later, a newspaper story about the Weaver family sparked national media attention. And the the news article basically read like, you know, federal fugitive holds up in cabin, feds can't do anything about it. Basically along those lines, obviously not verbatim. All right. And what did this do? This made the marshal's office look very weak. Now we have a dick measuring contest, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So this is where things get really, really bad. Uh, it, this is what sparked and created operation Northern exposure operation Northern exposure was there. The operation that the U S marshals created in order to apprehend, um, Weaver. Okay. And this was a full blown surveillance operation, Michael. I mean, they were using solar cameras along with other methods. They had guys hiding in the woods, with night vision and just let michael listen to this just one of these cameras cost the retail on one of these cameras was over one hundred thousand dollars for a fucking surveillance camera for them to have it up on this mountain watching this family back in 1992 so that's what million plus now yeah i mean so like like i said just keep keep adding all these things up in your heads guys and i'm sorry i'm not focusing too much on the uh chat over here on the clapper guys i'm like really focused on everything else that's going on but thank you everybody on the clapper that's here and everybody here on in the uh chat here as well okay so they got all the stuff going on and i mean these these u.s marshals it's not like there's one or two of them there's a bunch of them full camo night vision fully armed fully militaried out hiding in the woods and surveilling the weaver family now pretty much every male on the property was walking around armed at all times because that that was weaver's whole game with this he's like we're not going anywhere and if you're going to take us you're going to take us by force now it is also rumored that there was a karen-esque neighbor around the area kind of making some threats or excuse me saying that they were making some threats i don't know but anyway um during this time uh family friend kevin harris joined the weavers one other thing that uh, Randy Weaver mentioned, he mentioned something about Kevin Harris's stepbrother being there as well. Kevin Harris is significant to the story, and we'll get into that. I could not find any information about his stepbrother or who he was. None. I can't find any information about him leaving the property after this. Like, there's nothing, okay? So I have no idea. This surveillance lasted approximately five months. So again... Add these costs up in your head, five months of surveillance with all of these guys around the, I mean, there was a lot of marshals there, right? It wasn't like there was one or two. Okay. Now this is what, this is when everything broke bad. Day one, August 21st, 1992. Two marshals were surveilling the home for approximately eight hours. They went up the mountain early morning. um, I believe before daylight, they were up there for eight hours And they decided, okay, our shift's up. We're heading back down the mountain. Cool. When they were heading home down the mountain, they alerted the family's dog, a yellow lab named Stryker. Okay. Now, 
Samuel, Randy Weaver, along with Kevin Harris, and apparently Kevin Harris's uh, stepbrother went to investigate what the dog was alerted to because this dog started going berserk, right? When this dog was alerted to these uh, U.S. Marshals hiding in the woods, they thought maybe there was a mountain lion or, you know, they didn't know that they were going up to find Marshals, okay? Um, so they go up and see what the dog's alerted to. Mind you, at the time, Samuel Weaver is 14 and Kevin Harris is 23 years old. Keep those ages in mind with this, okay? And at this point in time, this is when the first shots at Ruby Ridge rang out. The U.S. Marshals first shot the dog. And you heard what Weaver said in the interview, whether it's true or not, I don't know. But Weaver claims that the dog was shot in the rear end and the bullet, the bullet exited the front of the dog. The Marshals claimed that they were being attacked by the dog. Those two stories don't go together. Either way, they shot this dog. At this time, Samuel Weaver and Kevin Harris returned fire, killing U.S. Marshal William Deegan. All right. So this is when things really, really broke bad, right? Um, Can I stop you right there before you go too far? And I want to ask, when they were doing surveillance on the property, or when they were surveilling the family, were they on the family's property with a warrant or without a warrant? So at this point, I don't believe they would have even needed a warrant to pull surveillance. I do believe they were fully on the Weaver's property. And if they weren't fully on the Weaver's property, they were not far outside of it. And then it makes oh. you wonder, were they on someone else's property with permission? So that's something um, That's something I didn't come across in my research, but now you have me curious about a few things. Because, okay. I, it, it, I mean, do you see where I'm getting at? Like, we have a shootout that started. It, but ultimately, we have a government entity on a completely paid off, from what you said, piece of property. Right. So 100% private piece of property. Um, and now, there needs to be a warrant. <laughs> Right. Okay. But think about this though, Michael, he's a federal fugitive at this point. Do constitutional rights even apply to him at this point? Well, he's, is he a fugitive? Uh, is, yes, so he's, I, I can't he's, remember he's, he's bonded yeah, he, out at this point, right? Right. But he didn't show up for his court date. This made him a federal fugitive and that's what launched the surveillance investigation. I still think you would need a warrant though. Wouldn't you? Well, I mean, well, in any other circumstance, it would be a violation of the fourth amendment to be there um, without a warrant. Right. But being that he's being that he's there or being that he's a federal fugitive now, I don't know if constitutional rights still apply to him. Well, every I'm, no, I'm no, no. Sure. hell yeah. If you're an American citizen, constitutional rights apply to you no matter okay, what. But, okay. But it's like I'm saying, like when you're a felon, you, you lose your Second Amendment right. Right. So if you're, if you're he's not convicted yet, though, he's not a, he's a fugitive, but he's not a felon. He's not, he hasn't been convicted of anything. He's still got to go to court and be tried. Right, but he's still a fugitive of the law, a federal fugitive. So I don't know. It's a, that's a, you know what? That's something I'm going to have to look into. I thought I was going to be done researching this show after today, but Jesus. Um. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you asked me to come in and you know bounce ideas. Uh, yeah, you know we we all fuck up from time to time. Um, <laughs> okay, so it is believed uh, that the uh, U.S. Marshal was killed by Kevin Harris. Okay. Um, during this exchange of fire, 14-year-old Samuel Weaver was also killed. And you heard Rand, you heard Randy Weaver talking about that. They shot him in the arm and then they shot him in the back. A 14-year-old boy. Okay. After they shot his dog. Now, mind you, they I mean, I know they have the idea that they're being surveilled, 
But if I'm in the woods and somebody starts shooting at me, I'm going to return fire. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Uh, and for everybody out there that's saying, well, it's a little odd a 14-year-old kid was armed. The house I grew up in, that's not that odd. I've always had access to firearms. We were we, we were an avid hunting family. Especially if you're um, on the woods yes, in Idaho with that. Yes, yes. That's, that's not – for everybody that thinks that that's outrageous or that's extremist, it's not. It's not at all. Um, and I'm, I'm going to take a shot to everybody should have a gun. All right. So um, let's see to continue into this. Hmm. Yeah, he was shot once in the arm and then once in the back, okay? After this time, the Weavers moved Samuel's body to the shed. They the shed that I was talking about that they just uh that his wife just gave birth in to Elisheba and the the menstruation shed if you want to call it that. Um that's where they put Samuel's body, okay? After the shootouts, the US Marshals ran back down the mountain uh to a neighbor's house to call 911. <laughs> I was trying to find the audio clip of the 911. I could find it, but not in a short enough clip to break it down for the show because it's like compiled within documentaries. I couldn't find it separate, guys. But if you go back out and you listen to some documentaries on this, or I'm sorry, watch some documentaries on this, you'll be able to hear this 911 call. Now, this U.S. Marshal was totally frantic in this 911 call. He was basically, you know, send in this send in that we need state police we need all this backup da, 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 da. they needed everything i mean it's still at this point yes you have one u.s marshal that's been killed yes you need backup in there but this guy didn't know everything that was going on he thinks there's guys trapped up there held at gunpoint a lot of inf- misinformation was being spread and at this time uh, U.S. law enforcement or U.S. marshals, they had no idea that Samuel Weaver was even dead. Nobody even knew that he had been killed yet. So they're not going into this with the mentality of they just they just killed this man's son. They're going into the into into it with the mentality of we got to get our guy. You know, that's what they're that's the mentality that they have right now with this. OK, um, let's move on. Um at this time, local law enforcement uh, evacuated neighbors and shut off access to the mountain. So they basically evacu- they, they were starting to kind of make a spectacle out of this, you know, evacuated all the neighbors, started shutting down roads. And everybody's like, what the fuck is going on? Yeah. And this is when things take a turn for the worst for the weavers. Not that they already haven't, but it starts getting worse after this. So this was also when the FBI became involved. Okay. Once the U.S. Marshal was killed, it now became an FBI matter due to government policy. All right. So once as soon as that U.S. Marshal expired on that property, um, this now became an FBI matter. Okay. And they didn't know what was going on up there. All right. So what does the FBI do? They bring in uh, the FBI's HRT, the hostage, hostage rescue team. And these are guys you don't want to fuck with. These guys are hardcore. They're highly trained. They are some badasses. You know, last last people you want in there, right? Mm-hmm. All right. So they bring in, they bring in the HRT team. Uh, yeah, HRT team. Um, and they made their own rules of engagement. Engagement. And in the rules of engagement that were sent to Washington that were approved, it said, um. If you see an armed male on the property, 
you can and should use deadly force. All right? That has never, ever happened in any hostage situation. Like, it's never been a thing where they, where Washington has approved orders like this. It's never been a thing. All right? Okay. Now, um, this this is all, like, day two of this. This is a full-blown miller, military operation. These guys immobilated... Um, uh, they got themselves going pretty fucking fast with this operation, okay? They brought in APC tanks, which APC tanks, that's an armed personnel carrier tank. It is basically a fucking full-blown military tank without the guns. It is armored. It's a track vehicle. So they were basically rolling down these roads in Idaho with fucking tanks. So you could imagine what the neighbors were thinking. It was around this point where uh, the public started really getting involved. Okay, they're wondering what's going on. They're standing at, at the roadblocks. This is a tight-knit community. A lot of people know the Weaver family. They know Vicky. They know Randy. They know their kids. So everybody's like, what the fuck is going on up there? Are they alive? Like, what is happening? All right? Um, yeah, so at this point, you have a full-blown military operation. Okay, this was day two. This is also when Vicky Weaver was murdered by an FBI sniper. Okay. So you heard Randy mention that in his interview uh, pretty quickly there that his that his wife was shot in the head. We'll get into the story of what happened through the building, right? Well, through the door. Yeah. That's that's what happened. So all right. So this is what ended up happening. Randy Weaver at the time was still mourning the loss of his son. He has no idea that there's FBI fucking snipers in the woods. Nobody knows that this is happening because nobody knows that Samuel Weaver has been dead. They're just thinking like they had no idea everything that was going on. Randy Weaver, Randy Weaver starts walking out to this, to the shed where Samuel's body was. And he reaches up to un, unlatch the latch to, you know, go mourn with his son, his dead son. And they take a shot at him. They shoot him through his fucking shoulder. Right. I'm assuming it was just positioning of him reaching his arm up at the time that kept him from getting shot in the neck or something worse happening. Right. Mm-hmm. At this point, when he got shot, they started, They he fucking ran back to the house. The sniper waited to try to take another shot at him. So at this point, you're you're shooting at this man in fucking cold blood. He's not shooting at you, okay? Mm-hmm. He's running back. You wait and hold off. You wait till they get in the door and shut the door, and then you fucking take a shot. This was a 200-yard sniper shot. The FBI uh, agent reported he had no idea what he hit. What he did hit was he hit uh, he hit Vicky Weaver. He shot her in the back of the head while she was holding her infant daughter uh, Alicia Bo Weaver. Okay, uh, something I got to throw out here that's a little bit fucking confusing. Sarah Weaver reports having bacterial spray on her from her mother. We'll get more into that because I'm a little bit confused about this. Um, but once the bullet exited Vicky Weaver's uh, skull, it then went into Kevin Harris, penetrating his arm and being lodged in his chest cavity, not too far away from his heart. Okay. So at this point, Vicky Weaver's dead on the floor. Her infant, uh, infant daughter's covered in blood. Um, uh, Randy shot. Harris is shot. At, at this point, the, uh, the the children are losing their minds because you got to remember, according to reports, there's still two other uh, little girls inside this building that just watched their mother get ex- basically get murdered. Right. And did the FBI believe this to be a hostage situation or is that just the team that they called in? 
So I think the goofy ass reports that came from the U.S. Marshals is what initiated the FBI thinking that there was hostages there, right? So, so it makes you wonder if when the sniper shot, was he under the impression that this was a hostage situation? If so, then why the fuck would he shoot at the building? Okay, so, like, that's the thing. I think maybe he thought he was going to get Randy Weaver as he was closing that door and entering the building. Um, you, I mean, you do got to think. 200 yards, There's, I mean, this. these bullets are supersonic, man. Yeah. You know, they're fucking moving. So, what I'm saying is that's reckless, though. You know what I'm saying? Like, you, right, it is. You wouldn't shoot at – I don't care if you're 500 yards, 100 yards, whatever. You wouldn't if – it's, if it's a hostage situation and the hostages are inside the building that he's going into, right – uh, you wouldn't take that shot unless you knew you were only uh, risking taking that guy out. Right. But obviously that wasn't the case. Yeah, but you got to you got to remember too. You know the whole premise behind their their orders was you know shoot if you see an arm male you you can and should use deadly force. So these guys went in there, you know they they were hard dicked in there waiting to take people out man they they were fired up ready to go this is a lot like the waco situation um so again uh this is when um randy weaver was shot at the shed this is when vicky weaver was taken out this is also when kevin harris was injured as well okay um and kevin's kevin's injury was pretty bad man i mean he was this he suffered an infection immediately he he was dying like he was not surviving, right? Um, so Dick Rogers was kind of one of the guys that was heading this up. I can't remember his exact position with the FBI, but he was one of the guys in charge. And Dick Rogers said, you know, come out or or else. Like we're we're not fucking with you. Like we're gonna we're gonna come in there and we're gonna take you the fuck out, right? Um, so at this point, the Weavers, like Randy and his his daughters and, and Kevin that was dying that were still left said, we're, you know, we're going to die here. This was the mentality that they had. They said, as soon as we go out that door, they're going to kill us. We can't go anywhere. They're literally picking his fucking family off. Right. Yeah. Um, so this brings us to day three. The government brought in heavy equipment in hopes to widen the road and build a new bridge to have better access to the Weavers property with you know the armed personnel carriers and, and and different things right i mean they brought in excavators and shit again keep 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 that money thing going on in your head there about the money that's being racked up here all right um they also brought in a remote control robot with a phone to communicate that was equipped with a 12 gauge shotgun mounted to it all right again add up the money think this is the 90s I, I mean, it a shot, what is it? A, was it a sawed off 12 gauge? How would that be? <laughs> I didn't want to say it, but I'm pretty sure. Yes, it was a short barrel 12 gauge <laughs> that was mounted to this fucking communication robot that they were sending up there. So they're using um, the very fucking thing that started this whole thing. <laughs> yeah. So they, they send this they send this robot in there that's equipped with a communication device and this fucking 12 gauge mounted to it. Um, and this is just wild. And also at this point in time. They're running around with these APC tanks right up to his house and shit. And at some point, one of the FBI uh, HRT guys decided just to jump out of the APC and go look in the shed there for for no, just a complete random, like no reason to, but he just did it. 
This is when he they discovered the body of Samuel Lee. is an emergency action message. At approximately 1 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time, Nora is tracking 15 ICBM nuclear missiles inbound to the following cities. Orlando, Miami, Pittsburgh, Dover, Newark, Richland, Philadelphia, New York City, Baltimore, Los Angeles, Las Vegas, Boston, Seattle, Detroit. This is an extremely deadly situation. Stay tuned, the next emergency message will be a presidential address. Oh. 